Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know, I once had a friend, Falafel. His name was Falafel because he was homeless, and we would play chess in Washington Square Park. At lunchtime, somebody would always go get him a falafel sandwich, and that's what he would eat all day long, every day. And then there was one period for about six months, he totally just disappeared. We were all worried, where's Falafel, where's Falafel? Oh, he's playing this backgammon game uptown. Then he was literally, after six or seven months, he was the best backgammon player in the world. He had some unusual talent. He went from homeless and broke to having $700,000. He went to Las Vegas to gamble on sports. He thought he would have the same skill at sports, which is a big problem. When people first make money, they always think they're smart at everything. And so Falafel figured, oh, I'm smart at backgammon, so I must be smart at making money and making money with sports. So... He lost all the money. He lost $700,000. And then the next I heard, he was in Iceland. There was a huge game. All these people from all over Europe were gathered in Iceland playing backgammon. Falafel won millions. And then he moved to Israel and set up a bunch of poker rooms and he started winning backgammon tournaments. He officially became a professional backgammon player. And unfortunately, at a young age, fairly recently, he, I mean, he's my age, but he had brain cancer and passed away. Rest in peace, Falafel. But all of this is an intro because I wanted to learn more about sports gambling. Sports gambling was too hard for me and too hard for Falafel. So who gambles on sports? Who makes money on sports? What does the world of sports gambling look like now? Is it legal? What's going on? What are the opportunities? So I brought on Mark Edelman, who is probably the world's premier lawyer for betting on fantasy sports. Fantasy sports and online gambling have a huge overlap right now. In fact, almost all online fantasy sports is gambling related. So I wanted to talk to Mark. A, I wanted to pitch him some ideas and you'll hear what he has to say about all of my ideas. And B, I was just curious, what's the lay of the land in the gambling sports world? So here is the ABCs of online sports gambling with Mark Edelman. You're a lawyer named Edelman, Mark with a C, and you have a New York, a Long Islandish accent. Um, you got this pretty well. Born on Brooklyn, live in Manhattan, but I was in that weird island for my formative years and yes. probably picked up an accent while I was there, if not before. If you think mine is strong, uh, you should interview my parents one of these days. Oh my gosh, I can imagine. And did they, did they get the accent after they moved to Long Island? Like, does it develop? 
Oh, 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 oh no. The um the Long Island accent is a Brooklyn accent with a little bit of annoying arrogance added into it. That's funny. Like cuz they had the money to like leave behind the Brooklyn people <laughs> once they got like a corporate job. They moved, raised you and your siblings and and, and, and then my brother and I said forget all this and we moved back to the boroughs. But just like they wanted you to do, you became the Jewish lawyer of their dreams. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, they. Uh, I think it was their second choice. Um, I think they were heartbroken that I did my undergrad at Wharton and did not become an investment banker. But, you know, parents always have got to feel this about something. Well, what brought you into, um, like, you must have been really into sports as a kid, and now you're the expert on fantasy sports, which is what we're going to be talking about here. But what, what got you in? I always tell people... Find your passion, and there's always some way. If you love the NBA, you might not be a professional basketball player, but there's fantasy sports, for instance. What was your path? I wholeheartedly agree with that. I knew I wanted to work in the sports industry at some point. Um, fastball topped out at 65 miles per hour. So, I mean, I don't think there's a level low enough for me. That's still good. Uh, <laughs> 65 miles an hour, you're faster than a car. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Um, I was pretty much told out of college two ways you could break into sports, sell tickets or get a law degree. And, you know, I'd worked too hard in school for me to build the next year of my success based on a totally different set of skills based on sales. So I practiced with two large law firms, sports law. We got really, really bored when I was working at Skadden, which was my first firm. So I had this website that was fantasy sport dispute resolution. It was like $15. It was meant to be like a joke of fun activity. But through that, I got a few clients in the fantasy sports marketplace. And, you know, I was in the right place at the right time because... Wait, wait, wait. Uh, I'm sorry. Let, let me ask about that. So you set up a little, like almost a joke company, fantasy sports conflict resolution. What does that mean? Yeah, we, we, we were called Sports Judge. I mean, this was before there was daily fantasy sports. Mm -hmm. This is like when everyone that was playing was pretty much playing like in their leagues where you have a commissioner and like league rules. And if there was a fight amongst the rules, amongst two team owners and their commissioner couldn't solve it, they would send us the dispute. I had like four or five people that worked on the site with me, and we would write these few paragraph legal opinions resolving the disputes in their leagues. That's fascinating. You were like the Supreme Court of fantasy sports. Yeah, so the site's still up. Uh, you know, it was a real fluke. We started our site, uh, and I got some media coverage. And then there was some other guy who was based in Missouri. Uh, who I think is like a publicity whore who has a candy shop where they purportedly had the world's biggest gummy bear. Uh, well, he decided to launch the exact same site we did because I got a little bit of media attention. Uh, but he went to the Wall Street Journal and claimed that they were selling thousands of disputes a week, uh, which yeah. was totally untrue. Now, this worked very much to my advantage because even though he ended up out of business two weeks later, but they didn't even really exist, like the Wall Street Journal was running stories on fantasy sports dispute resolution because a reporter got confused and thought it was a big market. So there was a period of time we were getting a lot of attention. That is so fascinating because you could you could imagine doing a column where each week is another conflict and and what the issues were and, and what your you know how you resolved it like that. That would be an interesting kind of ongoing column. And, and you know it's fun. I mean, we posted a lot of the opinions on our site for a while. Uh, it just became labor intensive. I mean, some of it was the traditional, he made his moves too late or there's collusion in trades. Uh, but there was some of them that were just hilarious. And I presume they were real. What's the site? What's the URL? Uh, sportsjudge.com. Like if someone, if there was collusion, 
How would you really know? Like if you didn't know the people and if it was circumstantial, uh, it had to be proved by circumstantial. Like we had to look at, would there be an incentive for them to collude? Uh, what were the past trade backgrounds between these teams? Uh, and we also like a lot of it was just like, but some people play very seriously and I'll have like these 15 page league constitutions. Uh, we'll go through the constitution and interpret their own rule about what is allowed and what's disallowed uh, and what they treat as collusion. Uh, the site may or may not still be up. No, it's up. It's very outdated. Could this be, let me just ask, like we're starting right into it. Like, could this be a legit business for someone? Because there are like billions of fantasy sports players and they probably still need conflict resolution. Is anyone doing this? Um, you know, nobody has continued to do this in a meaningful way. Um, I mean, the problem is it's a legitimate business. Uh, we charge $15 a dispute because the goal was simply uh, to cover the costs of running the site. Uh, my original goal was to take all these disputes, put them into a book and sell them, but I got busy with other stuff. Uh, the problem with the business model is it's a labor intensive business. Somebody has to write these decisions. And it probably takes about an hour to write each of these decisions, meaning that even if we gave the full revenue of writing the decision to the person who wrote it, but still barely minimum wage. So that was quickly, I pivoted away from this because while it was fun, uh, it could only be a hobby. It's a great hobby, but unless you have like third-party advertising on it, you're going to struggle to monetize it. Although, okay, what if you had charged $500? Is that a price point that's too high? Because these people take it seriously, so $500 might not be. In fact, $500 might be more worthwhile to them because it shows you have greater value than $15. And then once you kind of set the tone and philosophy, maybe you can outsource to India and just check a couple of boxes before you approve each opinion. I mean, I think you're entirely right. Um, here's the thing. If I went up to 500, we would get less opinions done. Uh, there would still be a market for it, but it would be a profit-turning site. I don't think if we charge 500 per opinion, we'd be able to outsource it to India. Uh, at 500 an opinion, I don't think I could even outsource it to anyone but myself. That to get mm. people to pay at that price point, uh, they're expecting that it's being written by someone who's a quote-unquote expert. Yeah. Uh, at $15 an hour, I mean, we had considered a $15 an hour model just exporting it not to India, but to other sports fans and other leagues who simply wanted to write these in exchange for being able to get services for their own league. But I mean, there's a trade-off of that model versus the one where you charge a lot more, but you're actually writing it yourself. What really ended up happening was I ended up doing, in addition to being a full-time professor, I ended up doing so much legal consulting in the fantasy sports market overall, especially for the daily fantasy sports companies that were coming out and certain professional sports teams and leagues, that this kind of just went by the wayside or became an incidental marketing vehicle for the consulting that I do. And I guess, so I'm not a, a real big expert on fantasy sports other than I watched every season of the league. <laughs> and uh, Matthew Berry's great book on fantasy sports. Plus he's been on the, the podcast a couple of times. So that's the full extent of my knowledge, but it seems like there's so many nuances, whether there's gambling, not gambling, prop bets, not prop bets, you know, all, all these issues. And there's, once you enter gambling in, there's all these license issues. How did you enter into the legal side of fantasy sports? And then I want to get into the idea of how someone like me or anybody can kind of potentially make money in fantasy sports. What are the, what are the possibilities? But how did you get into the legal side? Well, um, 
I graduated from Michigan Law School in 2003, and I practiced sports law full-time for five years. First was Skadden Arps on behalf of the teams, and then Dewey Ballantyne, which primarily represented players' associations. I left in 2008 to become a full-time law professor with a focus on sports. And when I made that transition, my focus was going to be on both sports and antitrust law. Uh, However, right around that point in time, I was able to find myself with one client that was a large full-season fantasy sports competition uh, that I was representing on a whole host of different matters. Then when things really turned, uh, and this is the flukiest of all possible situations. So this is August of 2010. I'm teaching at a small law school in Central Florida uh, with questionable leadership. And I'm already teaching a full-year course on contracts to over 100 students and a full-year course on property to over 100 students, which in essence in itself uh, is the largest teaching load that any professor has ever been assigned, uh, especially a junior professor. Hmm. And I was teaching in Florida. My wife was in New York. We were doing the back and forth, and I was looking to transition from being in Florida to being back in New York. So I went on the market looking for a job back in New York. And I was working for a dean who was distinctly vindictive, and she wanted to make it impossible for me to interview. So I get an email from her three days before the semester begins saying that in addition to teaching contracts and property, you have to teach a seminar, and that seminar will be offered on, which were the days that I wouldn't be teaching, to make it very difficult for me to interview. And she said, come up with a topic for a seminar on something that's innovative, that's not being taught, that no one's ever taught before. So my wife and I are in the car, driving from New York to Florida, a bit furious about this, and trying to figure out what I could teach a seminar on. And we're behind the wheel, and she's coming up with all types of ridiculous things, like pizza and the law, and we're laughing, and we're making the best time of it. Uh, We get to Virginia, and we're right by the Poe White Bridge, Uh, where it's bumper-to-bumper traffic, because it always seems to become that way. And she turns to me and says, Mark, you have one, and now you have two clients that work in the fantasy sports space. What if you taught fantasy sports in the law? And we're laughing, and it's silly, and it's funny. Eventually, we do a Chinese fire drill switch seat. She's behind the wheel. I am now sitting in the passenger seat. I'm scribbling things out. And by the time we hit the Georgia border, I have this entire syllabus for what's actually a very serious course on fantasy sports and the law. I teach the class to about 25 students over the course of the semester. Each week I have my notes and I type them up. I take those notes and I said, let me put it into an article and call this short treatise on fantasy sports and the law. And maybe some journal somewhere will want to publish it because I need to get another publication. Lo and behold, A journal at Harvard Law School says, wow, we love this. We want to publish your article. They published it, and I'm now the academic expert on fantasy sports and the law. The following year, I go to Forbes, and I want to write a column on sports antitrust for their magazine and for online. Uh, And the editor at the time, Michael Ozanian, says, sure, you can. We'd love to have you, but why don't you write on fantasy sports and the law? This stuff people are interested in. So now I have the law review article, the course, the Forbes postings on this brand new topic, FanDuel and DraftKings launch. We now have daily fantasy sports in the law. 
We have this new marketplace out there that no one's an expert on, but because no one's an expert on, I'm the closest thing to an expert. So everybody comes to me for help on this. And now all of a sudden I build a real expertise. So by 2012, 2013, just because I was the first one there, as well as I'm able to learn and continue to build, I went from doing something that was needed to teach a seminar cast because a dean wanted to make it difficult for me to shift law schools into probably one of the national experts, if not the national expert on fantasy sports and the law. You had the right skill set with the law skills. You obviously were super interested in fantasy sports because you had sports judged. And there's a little bit of right place at the right time, like fantasy sports was about to just really shoot up. Like it was an exponential growth in fantasy sports. So it does make me think like if someone's passionately interested in something, do you think they also have to have that right time quality for something like this? You know, I think there are three things that need to come together. I always tell my students when I teach to figure out your passion and go for it. Uh, And I think no matter what the passion is, whether it's sports, entertainment, comedy, no matter what the passion is, you should go for it. Uh, But I think three things really need to come together. One is you have to find something that you're passionate about. Second, there has to be some overlap between the passion and what you're good at. I'm very passionate about playing baseball. But as we said before, my fastball can't get above 65 miles per hour. So I can't just say I'm passionate about playing baseball, so I'm going to be a professional baseball player. I was able to take the academic ability and the legal ability that I had and put that together with the passion and find a nice overlap. And the third thing you said I think is really true, that, you know, if I had done everything I had done, not in this 2000 and three, which is when I graduated law school, to 2013 10-year period. If I had to try to do this 10 years earlier, I would have probably been too early for there to be a market for what I was doing. And if I started all this on the curve maybe three years later, there might have been somebody that got there before me. So yes, I would agree that hitting timing really does mean a lot. But then there's this right place at the right time thing. So it's sort of like you just have to be aware you have to stay informed with all the literature and the blogs and, and companies that are happening just so you can see which aspect of what you're interested in kind of blossoms to the top. So it might not have been something directly related to baseball, but it turns out fantasy sports was the thing that was bubbling to the top where you could apply your more and more of your efforts. I think that's right. And I think Matthew Berry is such a great example. You know, I read Matthew Berry's fantasy sports commentary, and just to give a comparison with one other person out there, I I don't think Matthew Berry knows more about sports or is able to explain fantasy sports better than, say, Eric Carabell, who writes for ESPN, whose stuff I've liked very much. Uh, But Matthew Berry was so great at this because he knew what he was. Uh, He knew that he was a comedy writer. If I remember right, he wrote with Married with Children. Yeah, And when Matthew Berry decided that he was going to become the guy in fantasy sports, he didn't throw away the comedy part. And even in everything he writes, there's a big comedy component. So he knew that his edge over anyone else that was going to be a sports writer was that he could be genuinely funny. Yeah. And that's salt. And people want to. I mean, if I had decided that I wanted to have a fantasy sports site, but just write about fantasy sports, uh, it would have put me in the same realm as several hundred other people. 
Uh, I think even with the sports judge site and other people had tried to copy the idea of fantasy sport dispute resolution, uh, even some other people that had law degrees. Uh, but I was someone who was very academically minded, who was a graduate of a top law school in a country who was practicing sports law in the traditional sense and being able to leverage that far more nerdy of an experience than Matthew Berry had, but that particular skill set into sports judge work well. Uh, and also because of the fact that I am so into the industry itself, you know, if you really love something and are passionate about, you're able to see the trends and as things change. So I seem to have known exactly that precise moment to say full season fantasy is truncating. These daily games are about to blow up big and do the pivot about 90 degrees and go from doing this dispute resolution, which is fun, but not revenue generating and also not putting me in attention of the people who I wanted to be working with. Uh, to going more of this DFS uh, and online gaming lawyer and consulting route, uh, which has allowed me to work with professional sports teams, large daily fantasy sports companies, and other type industries and people that I was truly passionate about building a career working with. And so what is daily fantasy sports? So I know what I know what fantasy sports is. Again, I watched the sitcom The League, and that was like mm -hmm. a weekly thing, you know, and, and only when the football season was around. Daily fantasy sports is a completely baloney name that was created by a marketer in 2006 to try to make an activity that looked somewhat similar, but not exactly the same as sports gambling treated under the law as fantasy sports. I mean, this story is just too good not to tell. The year was 2006. Bill Frist, had just pushed on the last day before Congress went to intercession, pushed a safe harbor bill. And the purpose of the bill was to make sure that we had all the resources out there to fight against international terrorism, including Al-Qaeda. On the last page of the bill, he attached the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act. Now, this was really special legislation coming from the casino industry to try to avoid certain levels of competition uh, in the gaming marketplace. But he couched it in this land saying that illegal forms of gaming were being used by terrorist organizations to funnel money. So the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act of 2006 made any payment processor, including a credit card company, liable if they accepted funds from online gambling sites that would disallow in the United States. Now, this, in essence, was the bill that killed party poker and full tilt uh, from operating in the U.S. Hmm. But at the end of the bill, there was a figurative safe harbor provision to a clause in the literal safe harbor. Act. And in essence, this clause was meant to protect credit card companies that were processing fees from ESPN, CBS Sports, and Yahoo full season fantasy sports contests. And the bill said that a payment processor or a host site would not be liable if they process money in conjunction with a fantasy sports contest, presuming it's a game of skill where you pick the performance of multiple real world players over multiple real world contests and the prize was preset. 
So this gets passed. Nothing is supposed to change at all for full season fantasy sports. Uh, but sports betting sites and poker sites that were international that were doing business in the U.S. were getting shut down. Hmm. And along comes this guy, Kevin Bonnet. Kevin Bonnet is a wise-ass. His full-time line of work is as a blogger about poker. And he's really unhappy that poker has been shut down in the United States. And his friends are also upset that sports gambling have been shut down. And he thinks it's completely unfair that there's an exception for fantasy sports. So rather than try to go to the media or go to the courts or go to Congress and fight this exemption, Kevin Bonnet thinks he's going to get the last laugh. By creating a site that looks very much like one of these now illegal sports books, but instead of having participants pick teams they expect to win games, Bonnet looks, and Bonnet's not a lawyer, but Bonnet reads his fantasy sports exemption for payment processor and is like multiple players over multiple real-world events. And he creates a site where participants have to pick a few players instead of teams that play on a few different teams that he thinks will put up the best statistics in just one day. Now, recognizing this site that Kevin Bonnet created, which he called Fantasy Sports Live, looks very much like an illegal sports book. But he wants to be treated like fantasy sports. And he thinks he met these requirements where payment processors would not have any liability in offering this game. He coined the term daily fantasy sports. And that's how this activity began. So let me try to understand what, what he's doing. So instead of picking a whole team, it sounds like just the main difference is I could pick an arbitrary number of players that I think will do well compared to someone else who picked an arbitrary number of players. That's exactly right. So that's interesting. And he, and, and, and were there games happening every day? Like how do you make it every day? That's right. For things like baseball, I believe he launched in baseball season. So whereas full fantasy sports, traditional fantasy sports, you'll draft your team in baseball in March, and it'll go to the end of the season at the end of September, and players' stacks accumulate throughout the year, and you can mm. trade players back and forth and pick them up on a waiver wire. Uh, in this version of a game, let's say 7 o'clock is the start of the first baseball game for these nights. So in this version of the game that Kevin Bonnet created, Sometime before 7 o'clock, you pick names of a bunch of players on a bunch of different teams. Uh, you pay an entry fee. You compete against a bunch of other people who also paid entry fees and picked a bunch of players. Uh, each statistic is worth a certain number of points. And if your team finishes with more points than most of the other teams, you win a cash prize. And the cash prize is preset like it's a contest, so you have an entry fee to enter the contest, and then some some number less than the combined entry fees is the prize? That's exactly right. So a very simplified but classic model will be a 10-team league. Ten contestants are allowed to enter. You pay $10 to enter, so the site will collect $100. Then they might do something like $50 as a first-place prize, $30 for a second place, $10 for a third. That ends up to $90. $90 gets paid out, and the other $10 goes right back to the site. And so the reason he was able to do this is because 
the credit card companies didn't have to worry about that he was doing something illegal because it's covered in this law, this safe harbor law. And so he's able to do it, even though it really is, like if you think about it in its purest form, I'm going to pick one guy and say he's going to have the best statistics no matter what anybody else picks. That really is like prop bet sports betting. Yeah, and you know, it's actually really a lot more complicated than that. I mean, this is what Kevin Bonnet told the payment processors. Now, again, Kevin Bonnet was not a lawyer. Um, and while this was incredibly creative, uh, Kevin Bonnet would have been benefited tremendously if he had a lawyer. Um, because all this meant was that the payment processor would not be liable under this UIGEA law. Uh, it did not mean that his game was legal in every state he was operating in. And even though it created a safe haven for the payment processor, it did not create a safe haven for Kevin Bonin himself. Uh, in fact, some of the states in which he was operating in, uh, the underlying contest very likely violated state law. Now, if Kevin Bonnet was the wise ass here, the last laugh was probably played on him because his company was out of business within a year. And in essence, Kevin Bonnet's company got left out of business for two reasons. One, he had a lot of trouble finding participants to play. Leaving aside the question of whether it was legal or not, or even if participants had any risk, you know, participants were scared off. And second, you know, he was not able to raise equity funding because it at least looked like it might be illegal under certain states. But just as Kevin Bonnet's business is going out of business, uh, another group that came from Scotland that ran a company called HubDub that initially was doing prognostication contests in conjunction with the sale of newspapers as a way of trying to induce people to buy newspapers, had realized most of their contests were failing to generate interest, but their free contests involving picking sports players were doing well. Uh, they decided to pivot into the exact same market that Kevin Bonnet had departed from. They renamed their hub-dub company FanDuel, and FanDuel was able to raise money from certain equity companies, including Comcast Ventures, relatively easily. Uh, and they became, for many years, the leader and now one of the two leading companies in the daily fantasy sports marketplace. Why were they able to raise money so quickly? Did they, like, register in every state, or what did they do? Uh, you know, my hunch is a lot of this comes down to who these people are. I mean, Kevin Bonnet was a poker blogger who was not a lawyer was making these bold statements that what he's doing was legal. And there were a few other companies from the Fantasy Sports Trade Association uh, who really were these know-nothings who were just making declarations. And maybe he was right, maybe he was wrong, uh, but Equity World was not going to be impressed. FanDuel was founded by a group led by Nigel Eccles. Uh, and the entirety of the group came out of McKinsey, which is a very large and well-known consulting company. And they had been gaming consultants for McKinsey, which is, you know, McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group are probably the two most prestigious consulting companies to work for. And they were very well spoken and they were articulate and they were careful and they asked questions to people. And, you know, they pushed the law, too. Don't get me wrong. The FanDuel folks were pushing the law, too. But the equity people, the FanDuel folks were able to speak their language. They understood business plans. 
They understood how gaming worked legally on in other continents and other countries. They were identifiable to private equity. They seem to have consulted with attorneys just to make sure that if they were going over the line, there was a line. They were just much more impressive as business people. What do you think their plan B was if the U.S. made a law that zero of this was legal? Do you think they had a plan B that, hey, we'll switch to some other kind of prognostication or we'll focus on other countries where it is legal? You know, the folks at FanDuel uh, and really Nigel and his other founders, they're very bright people. Nigel Eccles is no longer with FanDuel. He's now running another company, Flickr, which is, again, had no trouble raising money. Uh, if FanDuel got shut down, my guess is that the founders of that company would have become very successful operating or launching a different business in the technology space, maybe back in Scotland, maybe in the United States. Now, I would not say the same thing about everyone that's found the Daily Fantasy Sports Company since FanDuel. Uh, in fact, the level of sophistication of Nigel Eccles and the founder of FanDuel, to me, from my perspective, is on a much more elevated level than even the level of sophistication uh, of the initial founders of DraftKings, which has become the number one rival and perhaps has higher market share than them today. But again, Nigel Eccles was the right guy to be in the right place in the right time. Not that he was the only person trying to do daily fantasy sports in that period between 2009 and 2013. But he spoke very well. He was sophisticated. He understood gaming markets. He understood the internet. He had come from McKinsey. And if you're an investment banker or someone in the private equity world that's going to invest in one of these games or one of these contests that are questionably legal, you walk away feeling better when you talk to Nigel because you understand that he sees the gray and he recognizes what kind of things will clearly get a company into trouble as well. Uh, whereas some of the people that both preceded him and came after him seem to be lost on those issues. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. 
Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. 
Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So it seems like there was FanDuel, then DraftKings, and now there's like hundreds of little companies doing all sorts of nuances around sports betting, sports gambling, fantasy sports, prop bets, the whole thing. And, you know, it's interesting because there always is going to be the company that sticks out like the soft thumb that is pushing the envelope a little bit too far and is playing the game of will I be really successful for it or will I be shut down? I mean, the first was Kevin Bonnet. And Kevin Bonnet's like, look at me. I'm doing daily fantasy sports, which wasn't even a thing. Uh, And the question was, would he be able to build a huge market for it? Or would he get shut down for illegality? It turned out to be neither. It just turned out he couldn't raise funds and he couldn't logistically figure out how to do this and he was gone. Where where did he end up, by the way? I have no idea. I've never met him. That's funny. Um, FanDuel took this incredible approach uh, of they were pushing the envelope, but they were pushing the envelope carefully. DraftKings then took over the lead as they're going to push the envelope, in my opinion, way too far. Uh, FanDuel had things they wouldn't do. Like, they wouldn't do daily fantasy NASCAR. They said multiple events, you can't do it based on one race. The folks at DraftKings come in and be like, a race is multiple events, this is multiple laps. They start claiming a baseball game is multiple events because there are multiple pitches thrown. They were doing things that, to me, were not defensible. What's the multiple events thing mean? I don't understand. Uh, Under the UIGEA, one of the aspects to carve out is for the payment processors to be exempt, even if the underlying issue game would violate state law, uh, is that the underlying game to constitute fantasy sports would have to involve multiple players over multiple real-world events. Uh, that was one of the factors that at least the federal, that Congress in 2006 uh, had said would distinguish fantasy sports from sports gambling. Because you're selecting a team over a season, so there's multiple events. Uh, that's exactly correct. But they structured it so that it's a team for the day and the multiple events might be every inning, how you did, or every lap. Uh, you, you, know, the, you know, most of the normal daily fantasy sports companies, FanDuel and the precursor, said one day was fine as long as if you're picking players from multiple teams. So let's say the Yankees are playing the Red Sox and the Mets are playing the Braves. And I select three players from the Yankees and three players from the Mets. The argument is that's multiple real-world events because some of them are playing in one game and some are playing in another. That's two events. Now, I think that's a reasonable argument. DraftKings took it even further. DraftKings said we could run a game that's only based on the Yankees-Red Sox. That doesn't even have to be two baseball games players being put in because they're claiming, well, multiple innings on multiple events. They have to kind of use a metric, though, different from won or lost. Their players have to be measured per inning in some way? Uh, You know, no matter what you're using, you're going to be measured across the game. You can't do wins-loss anyway. So whether it be full-season fantasy sports or daily fantasy sports, uh, no matter what you choose to do, you're tallying up a combination of players based on statistics over what period of time is determined to be the appropriate period. I see. So you're just basically changing the definition of a player's score from all his, you know, hits for a season versus how many hits each inning added up, which is the same thing. Yes. So, okay, so now, uh, you know, they, they've figured it out, supposedly, legally, and 
these industries kind of blow up and, and correct me if I'm wrong. There's, there's lots of companies now. I mean, there's, there's companies all over the space and each with its own little nuance, like monkey knife fight. You know, it's true. I mean, there are tons of companies out there. Uh, but if you look at market shares, uh, it's a very heavily consolidated industry. I mean, the top two combined, uh, which are FanDuel and DraftKings, uh, combined for upwards of 90%, close to 95% share of the daily fantasy sports marketplace overall. Behind them, I mean, you have Yahoo, you have SuperDraft, and you have Monkey Knife Fight, uh, each of which are small and to some extent or another growing. Uh, that probably make up, if we said FanDuel and DraftKings have, and I'm making up numbers, between 90 and 95% of the marketplace, uh, if you add in there SuperDraft, Yahoo, and Monkey Knife Fight, you're now probably talking about 97 to 98% of the marketplace. And then you have hundreds of other guys out there, um, but they all represent really less than 2% of the market even combined. So I'm going to take a look at DraftKings for a second, and uh, it's worth... $15 billion. It's, it's pretty big. Uh, and their revenues, only $357 million in revenues. They've got to kind of, to justify a $15 billion value, they, I hope they're growing pretty fast in revenues. Uh, I'll tell you, interesting thing about DraftKings, and this might have recently changed, but to the last time I checked, DraftKings has never turned a profit. Not for any quarter. Uh, FanDuel has. DraftKings' goal is to become humongous in size. Perhaps they think there are network effects if everybody plays DraftKings. Perhaps this is a slow play like Amazon, which took many years to turn a profit. But DraftKings spends so much money on marketing and legal defense of actions against them that while their revenues dwarf any other daily fantasy sports company, the question for them is still, Will they ever turn a profit and how? Why is it hard? Like, why do they have to spend so much on marketing? Like, people love fantasy sports. They love betting. This is combining the two. It seems like word of mouth alone will make this huge if, they, if they're doing everything correctly and authentically. Well, you know, DraftKings has always wanted to be number one. DraftKings was actually a merger of two companies, DraftKings and Draft Street. Uh, that were respectively two and three in the marketplace, far below FanDuel. And when they came together, they became almost as large as FanDuel. They want to be the brand that's synonymous with daily fantasy sports. They want to have the relationships and try to build rela exclusive relationships with all the sports leagues. They want to wipe all the other competitors off the map or at least make them into very, very small companies comparatively. Uh, and their marketing seems primarily geared towards making sure people think about them rather than FanDuel. Uh, in fact, DraftKings and FanDuel had attempted to merge a few years ago, and probably the best thing that the US DOJ and FTC could have done, which they did, was disallowed the merger. It, in essence, would have been like Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola merging, which we would not want to happen. So instead, DraftKings and FanDuel are back in like Cola Wars of the 80s. But instead of it being Coke and Pepsi advertising like crazy for market share, it's DraftKings and FanDuel that are doing it. So I see on DraftKings.com, it's like every sport. 
forgive. I don't know that much about it. Like, is there gambling on this as well? Like, can you make can you win money? Uh, oh, first, all of daily fantasy sports is to win money. Um, so DraftKings fan, all of these business plans are exactly what fantasy sports live is. They are to win money. Um, whether daily fantasy sports is fantasy sports or is sports gambling, I, I leave that question for another day. Uh, but the goal is to make money. Um, but that aside, FanDuel and DraftKings aren't just daily fantasy sports companies anymore. They're full-scale sports gambling. Uh, because in May of two, uh, in the past May, uh, May of 2019, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the Professional and Amateur Sport Protection Act, uh, which in essence, for the first time, allowed states other than Nevada to allow for traditional sports gambling, including online gambling. As soon as that decision came down, FanDuel and DraftKings immediately pivoted into the traditional sports gambling market. So not only are FanDuel and DraftKings the two largest companies by far in daily fantasy sports, uh, but they're now competing against companies like Caesars, William Hill, and PointsBet uh, in the market to offer legal sports gambling that's regulated and licensed by individual states. Right. So right now, for instance, I I guess this is soccer, and it's 43 minutes in. And it's showing me the odds. One team is plus 375. A tie is plus 155. Another team is plus 120, I think. I don't know if I'm reading it correctly. And I can bet right now if I log in. Well, where are you based? Uh, right now, I am sitting in Florida, and I live in New York. Um, I am not sure if you could do that in Florida. You absolutely cannot do it in New York. But if you are in New Jersey or Delaware or Tennessee or Colorado or Nevada or Washington, D.C., you absolutely could on one side or another. And they're kind of um, what they offer is the fact that given all these sports and they have like right now I'm looking at tennis, I could be looking at golf. I could be looking at ping pong. There's always some game happening somewhere that I could bet on right now. Yeah, and, and let me just back up. If you're looking at DraftKings's daily fantasy sports site, yes, in Florida, they will allow you to play as well as in New York. But if you are looking at their sports gambling site, there is no license for them to operate either in Florida or in New York at present. Uh, so if you are able to play on the DraftKings sports gambling site, not the Daily Fantasy sports site, but the sports gambling site in Florida, uh, the company would be committing a felony. And that's where the interesting legal minutia comes into play. Right. So they're, the way they beat that challenge is just they recognize where someone's from and they don't allow those logins. Uh, that's correct. They're supposed to use geotracking technology to achieve that. And even though this is a bit in the weeds, what if I use a VPN to pretend I'm from New Jersey when I'm from Florida? You know, it's interesting. Um, James Glanz did an article in the New York Times uh, in 2015 or 2016. Uh, and in that, he showed that people were accessing the DraftKings site by using VPN masking devices. My understanding is by today, uh, any reasonable company, especially of any scale, such as FanDuel or DraftKings, will not be using simple VPN technology, but instead would be using a more complex geotracking technology. Uh, the problem with the VPN technology and IP address search 
uh, is for IP address search, anyone could buy a VPN uh, for right. under $30 that allows you to hide your IP address. While there has not been a law case directly on this, uh, my view, and I think it's prevalent view in the field, is that if you're simply searching for location based on IP address, uh, you're not exercising commercially reasonable practices. And if people are simply masking their IP address with a basic VPN and you don't catch this, it's on you. Uh, whereas uh, geo-tracking technology, while not 100% perfect, is considered to be commercially reasonable practices for the course today of trying to prevent people from playing impermissibly. So, okay, so looking at all this and, and getting the, the, the summary of the lay of the land, and I know it's very high up survey, uh, a couple ideas come to mind. So I want to just run each idea by you and see if this is a way an individual can like, who's excited about sports or fantasy sports or gambling or whatever, here's just different. I always think of things in terms of there's a wheel and the wheel is sports slash fantasy sports. And then there's spokes. So one spoke would be to create some kind of alternative to have more sports than DraftKings or FanDuel. So for instance, you know, there's prediction markets in the political world, like, like predicted.org and, and, you know, odd shark and other uh, Betfair, I think, and uh, other sites. So potentially you could have like some sort of prediction markets where there's laws or fantasy prediction markets. Like I'm going to pick my party and here's the, here's the members of Congress in my party. And I'm going to bet for the season, which is the election season on this fantasy political team. Well, that's interesting. Um, first, um, most states separately make betting on an election to be an illegal activity. So that particular area one can't go into. Interestingly, I am not the only law professor that has tried to do something in the fantasy sports space. Uh, there's a professor in Texas by the name of Josh Blackman uh, who created, but there were no entry fees and prizes, fantasy SCOTUS, where you had to pick out Supreme Court rulings. So, I mean, things like this potentially being that. popular. Josh's site is good. If you go to Fantasy SCOTUS, uh, when the court's in session, it's at a minimum, you'll find it interesting. So I think the first thing is, yes, uh, in the general context, can you find something new that you could bet on that FanDuel and DraftKings aren't doing? Absolutely. Uh, if you're going to do that, uh, first, you'd certainly speak to an attorney to make sure that what you're creating is a legal thing to bet on. Uh, without plugging my consulting services too much, because no one probably wants to hear that, uh, one of the things I do for startups is when companies have ideas like that, I will do the one-hour kickoff call. And probably about a half of the things that people come to me with uh, can't be gamified based on existing laws. So I think you want to be careful. So, so, like, so just to ask, like this fantasy SCOTUS, I'm looking at it right now. So they give the crowd, you could predict, and they show you the crowd prediction for each justice on every possible decision. But like you said, there's no gambling. And is there any way to make, I guess this is just interesting by itself. And there's probably as a content play, it's even interesting. And gambling would just make it more interesting. I wonder if there's any way, any kind of gray area in the middle somehow. I mean, if Josh came to me, uh, this being Josh Blackman who created um, fantasy scores, and he never has, just to be clear, if he did and I were answering this, it would be a violation of attorney-client privilege. But if Josh theoretically were to come to me 
and asked me, can I monetize Fantasy SCOTUS in the FanDuel DraftKings way by charging an entry fee and a prize? Uh, my answer to him would probably be we have to look at each state and figure out which states you want to do it in. Uh, different states allow contests with different ratios of skill versus chance. Uh, the most favorable states to operate these contests are states known as the predominant purpose test states, uh, which means if it's not an excluded category and you could show the contest involves more skill than chance, it's okay. Now, for those who are looking to enter the marketplace with something interesting, uh, while there are only about 20 or so states that realistically follow the predominant purpose test rule and do not have separate licensing rules, uh, the largest state in the United States, California, is a predominant purpose test. Uh, so if the question that Josh wanted to ask was, could I try to do this in California and maybe a few other states, I would say, let's go back, let's look at the state legislation, let's make sure there's nothing specific in there about not betting on Supreme Court results. Let's test this out in beta. Let's show that there are consistent people that have skills that do better and beat other people on average more than they don't. And if all looks good, let's launch it. Uh, so there certainly are avenues to do this. Um, again, we all have our own background. Uh, my background is being in a lawyer who's looked at this space very carefully. Uh, I think innovation is great. I think if you want to launch in this space, you have to be innovative. You can't copy FanDuel DraftKings to a T. Uh, but before you invest real money into marketing a site or designing something or having an outside developer, uh, I would say make sure you talk to a lawyer who actually knows the area, not someone who's excited about it or wants to say they're a fantasy sports lawyer or just wants to say you could do it and take your money. But make sure to talk to someone who really knows the intricacies and make sure that before you get very innovative, that there isn't something out there that legally clearly disallows it that explains why nobody else has innovated in that same area before. Is there a difference between gambling and contests? So for instance, and I'm just using fantasy SCOTUS as an example, like I see here, there's a league list. So Harvard law school has a team. Uh, York high school has a team. George Mason law school has a team. So could they sort of pay an entry fee to be in, uh, you know, a team on the league? And let's say all the teams are, companies registered in California or some legal state. And then the winner of the league every month uh, gets a cash prize or some other prize. It could be cash or non-cash. Maybe. Generally speaking, it doesn't matter what verbiage you want to call it. You call it a contest, you call it gaming. I mean, you call it a potato fall you want. I mean, courts are not going to care what verbiage you use. Uh, that's where Kevin Bonnet totally missed the point. Uh, courts are going to care about the reality of the activity. Now, as a somewhat oversimplified general matter, uh, a contest will be illegal, meaning not legal, if it includes three things, consideration, chance, and reward. Get rid of any one of those three, you're fine. Consideration is the entry fee. So consideration is what you pay to join. Mm. Reward is the prize that you get at the end. So if you're telling me you want to do a site like Fantasy Scopes, and you've decided no matter what I tell you, you're going to charge an entry fee to people and you're going to pay out a prize. Two of the three elements for illegal gambling have already been met unless an exception applies. Let's forget about the exceptions. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have an entry fee and you have a prize, that means you can't be a game of chance. Now, different states define chance differently. Some states say if there is more skill mathematically than chance, you're fine. Some states say you're allowed a little bit of chance. 
Uh, some states like Arizona out there that don't like any gambling that's not specially licensed say you can't have any chance at all. Interestingly, my view, without doing any testing on something like Fantasy SCOTUS, you very well might be able to monetize it in California. But if you try to do the same thing in Arizona, you've now committed a felony. Because it's probably not chance, but Arizona doesn't care. They, they're focused more on the reward and consideration. Uh, yeah. In Arizona, if there's even a tiny bit of chance, you're disallowed. Whereas in California, as long as they're more skilled than chance, you're fine. So, okay. So, so, uh, and I'm just thinking fantasy SCOTUS for all we know is a good business just because maybe it gets a lot of users and people obsessed with the Supreme court so they could sell ads or whatever, or maybe people are willing to pay for data about it's a, it's a weird kind of polling, you know, to see where people are placing their bets. I don't know. We're, we're just making it up. So, so the first question was, are there other potential, uh, fantasy type leagues, but involving things other than straight sports. And you showed me this example of Supreme court. You could imagine business related ones that are unrelated to the stock markets. I don't know. There's probably other content plays. Someone could do fantasy weather in theory. Yeah. Then there's the question. There's a meta version of that, which is providing a skeleton of what a fantasy, an online fantasy league with predicting and leagues and betting is. So I can say, I can be the meta person who says, you just fill in the word Supreme Court here, put in all the cases in this database, and here's people could log in. So someone someone can make kind of the infrastructure for to, so you can make any sort of fantasy league and sell those. Absolutely. And in fact, I mean, you know, if you look at the people who are making money in fantasy sports right now, it's not just the FanDuel's and the DraftKings. There is a company that's become incredibly successful that has some investors from the professional sports world named Sport Radar. Most fantasy sports people and gaming people have not heard of Sport Radar uh, because Sport Radar is not a sexy company. You're not going to see ads on television for Sport Radar. Sport Radar, as well as Stats, both collect, report, and sell disseminated statistical information uh, to be used in fantasy sports contests. Uh, there are companies out there that have become experts in building fantasy sports websites. Uh, you don't see them advertise, but they sell that. You have companies like Rotowire, uh, which in the grand world of website of eyeballs on websites, uh, Rotowire is far from a very frequently looked at website on the national level. Uh, but if you look at huge fantasy sports fans, Roto Roto Wire and Roto Grinders are incredibly popular sites, uh, which make them uniquely positioned uh, to sell advertising space to the DFS players. Uh, so we're only seeing the top of the food chain here, but we have this whole vertical integration uh, that's needed to make these contests possible. Right. So the the first one, the um, sports sport radar, this is like uh, data, so that. Uh, it, this feeds into all the sports books. This feeds into the fantasy leagues. This even, they even have media products where they could, when you see statistics on the TV screen, while the announcers are talking, there's a good chance it could be coming from sport radar. That's what they do. That is correct. Sport radar and stats are the two largest companies to do that. That's completely correct. And it looks like also just to relating to the meta stuff earlier, they also could make you your own bookmaking service that you could use for your own purpose. They'll sell you the infrastructure to make your own sports book. 
I mean, leaving aside legality, yes, you can get that in all types of different places. And RotoWire is like a media play on fantasy sports. That's exactly right. So to make money, if like sports is your love, to make money, like creating a media, uh, a, a different twist on a media site that serves fantasy sports might be an interesting thing. Maybe it kind of aggregates all the different sports books at the different sites, has great content writers about which people to recruit this week or whatever. Absolutely. And, you know, especially on the writing side, you know, in the DFS marketplace, we talk about being very consolidated and how FanDuel and DraftKings have huge legs up uh, through getting favorable legal bills for themselves and raising money and other things. Uh, But one of the nice things in 2020 is just about anybody could start a blog and just about anyone could start a website. And if you come up with something innovative, it could blow up overnight. Now, it doesn't for most people, but for some it does. Uh, so there's certainly that is certainly an easy way to get in uh, by building some type of a blog or website where you report or provide information. And if you can find a way to provide something that other people aren't providing, that's a huge edge. So for instance, I could potentially, let's say I'm a software guy and I get data on the NFL in real time from all the, um, what are those things called where they, they measure the impact when two players hit each other? Mm-hmm. So, so I could take data from those on the level of impact each team is suffering and each player is suffering and the weather conditions and who's playing who and where they're playing and look at the past, use statistics to look at the past hundred times these similar situations have happened and then make a prediction in real time what's going to happen. And that could just be an ongoing service I provide. If I have software knowledge and access to the data and from places like sports, sport radar. Oh, of course. And I think that's, I mean, we really are an increasingly big data world. And I mean, for me, my niche in the fantasy sports marketplace has been to bring together a passion for sports with a very high level understanding of law. But I think there's huge opportunities for other people to bring together an interest in big data uh, with an interest in fantasy sports or gambling. Yeah, because I think like, Horse racing 20 years ago was a, a, a data play. Like a lot of people wrote software to, to gamble on horses and it worked out very well. There are entire hedge funds doing it. But now the data is much more complicated for things like the NFL or, you know, in a money ball sense, data for, for some sports are very complicated. And so maybe there's still opportunities there. I have no doubt that there are market asymmetries out there and someone will find a way to exploit them. Do you think there are gambling arbitrages right now? Do you think there's any, like some sport that's underfollowed that so there might be gambling opportunities or like if you were to gamble on a sport, where do you think you could find an edge from either data or knowledge or whatever? Uh, well, you know, I got to say first that uh, I personally am not heavily involved in gambling in sports, but if I were, uh, I think back from 1995 to 1999, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Pennsylvania. And during my four years I was there, in addition to doing a lot of work and probably having a good time, uh, I probably watched more Ivy League basketball games than I ever needed to watch. Uh, if I had a way to legally bet on sports as far back as the late 1990s, and I would have bet on something, I probably would have been betting on Ivy League basketball because it's something that first had not gotten the level of attention as some other things that people bet on. 
Uh, and second, I think that based on my experience with the activity, I didn't have any insider information, but I think I was uniquely positioned from what I had known or what I had seen to put information together. Is inside information illegal in sports betting? Uh, you know, to a growing extent, sport, the laws are being put in place by the states that are licensing it and the regulated fantasy sports sites are, are disallowing it. Uh, in fact, there is a whole group of people who are supposed to be excluded uh, from participating in other sports gambling or in DFS. It's not insider trading. So, I mean, it would not be investigated by the SEC, but to allow people on the site with that type of information first, it should exclude you from a win. Uh, and second, under both um, certain state gambling laws and certain fantasy sports laws, uh, it would deem the site to be in violation of the rules to allow an impermissible person to play. So, so far it seems like, okay, there's potentially setting up your own DraftKings uh, on a new domain, like how Fantasy SCOTUS is, and then dealing with, is this a content play? Is this a gambling play? Uh, you know, figuring that out. Uh, so, so there's like a software play where you kind of allow people to create these quasi DraftKings and other domains. And then there's actually setting one up in other domains that you might be excited about. Then there's a content plays like, like this Rotowire where you're going to write articles specifically catered to people who are living and breathing every day, fantasy sports. And then there's data plays like sport radar, where you're going to have different sources of data and you're going to tie them all together and be like the, the source of data for all of these websites. So there's a variety of business models. I imagine there's some sort of, could there be some sort of like advisory service? Like, you know, you'll get, when, when we get a signal, you'll get a text right now, like, okay, re recruit this guy for your daily team or whatever like some, some kind of advisory wire? Uh, yeah, and I mean, I think they're beginning to exist. I mean, you know, one of the things about being early into this space is I've advised a wide range of companies that have ideas. Nothing you've come up with today is innovative in the sense that I haven't heard it before. Uh, nothing I could probably come up with would be innovative in the sense that I wouldn't have heard it before. Uh, all these ideas are out there. Now, the question is not who's coming up with the idea. The question is who's going to execute upon it. Uh, and to the best of my knowledge, while there are many people with ideas to try to provide these services, nobody's effectively found a way to execute on it. Uh, but I think that opportunity is very much out there. Like what other opportunities that people talk to you about or, or pitch you? You know, I'm to the extent that I'm advising a client, I'm pretty much limited where I can't say right. uh, due to attorney-client privilege. Um, but... Uh, anything under the sun with respect to things that you could game on or bet on uh, has been broached to me at some point or another. Uh, all types of ways of picking and prognosticating and selling that information has been broached to me. Uh, again, I mean, everybody thinks the number of people who call me with an idea and we do the hour call and they think they're the first one in the world with the idea uh, happens all the time. Usually when the person that calls me and thinks they're the first person in the world to think of it, I probably had two other phone calls that week with people with the exact same idea. Is there any example of one where you're not dealing with attorney-client privilege where that happened? Um, the attempt to try to create a stock market based on the future stats of players, I probably get at least twice a month. Wow. Uh, and there are fundamental problems with that model, but that doesn't mean that I don't have someone new every month that thinks of the first one to come up with. And it's funny because on the one hand, maybe the gambling is the, is the hurdle that they can't pass, but just as a content play and as a game, it sounds fun. And I mean, if you're going to do things in the free sense, 
if you want to knock out the prize or knock out the entry fee, you are going to be okay. Uh, and people just need to be more creative with the way they do things. Now, one company who I'm working with, who happens to be an overjoy to work with, uh, is a company called uh, Wagertown. And without sharing anything confidential, one thing that Wagertown does is their business model is they found a way to monetize the product without charging participants entry fees, which makes it not wagering, ironically, despite the name, and not gambling. Now, if you want to get rid of the entry fee or get rid of the reward, there's almost nothing that you can't do. How do they get rid of the, uh, how do they get rid of the entry fee? They don't charge money to participants to play. They have other ways of monetizing the site. Like how do they monetize? Uh, you know, there are all types of other ways to monetize the site. You could sell all the things on the site. You could sell advertising space. There are all types of ways uh, that one can monetize a site. But you cannot charge money to the person who's competing for a prize for the chance to win a prize unless the underlying contest is a legal game of skill. So uh, what other what other models do you see out there? Um, you know, most people want the DraftKings model. I mean, that's just, it's that simple. Most people want to be DraftKings and want to be FanDuel. Uh, that's what most people come back with. Everyone wants to do the same thing that everyone else is doing. Now, I have a few other clients who are going to launch with very innovative things soon, but they're not on the market yet, so I can't speak as to what those would be. Okay, here, here, here's an idea that I'm sure is not innovative also, but what if you have a site which aggregated all of the sports betting or fantasy sports sites so that you could see if there's any spread between any two sites and bet on one side here or the other side there. It's like locking in free money, like an arbitrage. I mean, there are all types of things that people could attempt to do. And I think there are all types of opportunities to make money out here. I am reluctant to say any one idea is the big idea or the brilliant idea. I think there are a lot of opportunities out there. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, how big is this industry? It's like a multi, it must be at least billions. And like any other industry, things continue to innovate. If I had told you in the year 1997 that I am going to be selling videos on the web uh, of major movies and people are going to get their movies that way and are not going into stores, who went to bought it. I mean, so we're constantly in the world of innovation. Mark, this was a great summary of the fantasy sports industry. Maybe the last question is, what's one thing that you see bubbling up a little bit? Like what's some new trend in the space? Or is there a new trend in the space that you see happening that you've kind of been surprised? And I know you've written a lot on Forbes about kind of the effects of COVID on, on fantasy sports. But mm -hmm. other than that, like what's some new thing kind of bubbling up to the surface that you see or some new category that people are betting on or some new money model or, or content model? Within the next five years, most states will have some form of traditional sports gambling that they allow and license online. Uh, and the question is going to be, what will the demand be? Daily fantasy sports was created in a market where you couldn't bet online on, in the traditional gambling sense. Uh, so daily fantasy sports was the next best thing. As we move to a world where it becomes possible in most states for people to gamble on sports online, will there still be the same type of market for daily fantasy sports 
when you can still bet on sports results? And how will companies that operate in DFS space shift? Will FanDuel and DraftKings even stay in DFS, or will they be primarily sports gambling companies in five years and have DFS be an afterthought for them? Uh, I think it probably will be that, but we'll have to wait and see. Well, Mark Edelman, uh, how can people find you? First off, you have great articles on Forbes, so I encourage people to search Mark, M-A-R-C-E-D-E-L-M-A-N on Forbes for your articles. They're always interesting. Where else can people find you? Uh, the best way to find me, if you want to follow me but not actually see me, uh, you can follow me at Twitter, uh, at Mark Edelman, at M-A-R-C-E-D-E-L-M-A-N. For people that want to reach out to me for something more specific, whether it be they have a business idea or they just want to chat, uh, you could get me at my work email, which is Mark, M-A-R-C, at Mark Edelman, M-A-R-C-E-D-E-L-M-A-N.com. Well, Mark, thank you so much for answering my questions and being patient about it. Uh, but I think I asked you this already. Are you related to the chess player, Danny Edelman? I am not. All right. I was just curious. There's, probably, there's a billion Edelmans, but I figured I'd give it a try. I usually get asked about Julian or about Rick. Uh, so I give you points for diversity here, but no, I am <laughs> not related to Danny Edelman. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I super appreciate the time and you answered all my questions and I'm going to, it's a very interesting space. Uh, you're very welcome. Be well. Yeah, you too. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 